Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Uh, welcome to the New Books Network, uh, New Books in Genocide Studies. My name's uh, Christopher Davey. I'm the Charles E. Scheidt Visiting Professor of Genocide Studies and Prevention uh, with the Strauss Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. And I have with me today uh, Dr. Claudine Kuradusenge McLeod. Uh, she is a, a professorial lecturer of the School of International Service at American University. And she recently published Narratives of Victimhood and Perpetration, the Struggle of Bosnian and Rwandan Diaspora Communities in the United States. It was published by Peter Lang in 2021. Welcome to New Books Network. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So uh, perhaps to get us started, we want to hear lots about your book, um, but it'd be helpful for our listeners to know a little bit more about you. Perhaps you might introduce yourself and tell us about your career, uh, some of your life experience, and then why you chose to work in peace and conflict studies. Sure. So you already know my name. So I'm Claudine. I am originally from Rwanda. So I was born in Rwanda and um, like most Rwandans who were in Rwanda during the genocide, um, I kind of went through the motion. I was still a, a little kid. I was like six, seven years old when it happened. Um, from Rwanda, we went to a refugee camp in Goma, and then I ended up in Belgium. And then I moved here to the U.S. about 11, 12 years ago now. Um, in terms of like my career, I'd never really thought that I would be in genocide studies or peace and conflict. I was really interested in just movies in general. Like I just wanted to make movies and things like that. Um, but the conversations that were happening around um, genocide, especially the Rwandan genocide, were very troubling to me. Um, the way um, teachers were talking about it, the type of lectures we're having uh, in the different classes I was taking um, kind of pushed me to decide that I either need to be part of a conversation or I just need to get away from 
just thinking about uh, genocide, thinking about Rwanda and things like that. And as a Rwandan, it was very hard to kind of distance myself from something that was so impactful. Um, so I ended up just deciding that if someone was going to talk about Rwandan genocide, I want to be in the room just to at least create a conversation that will be a little bit more complex than what we were being taught, what we're talking about in different spaces. Um, so that's how I ended up in this field. Um, in terms of my work and my career, I've, I've been interested for a really long time in stories and narratives, how stories and narratives are created and how they are a reflection of our past, our present, but also our future. And my work has focused mostly on Rwanda, but in the last few years, I've already I've also compared Rwanda and Bosnia in terms of like how stories are formed, especially post-genocide stories. My first um, work was actually focusing on um, stories of victimhood perpetration and looking at uh, the Hutu communities in Belgium. Since I had grew up in Belgium and I had a lot of contact and I, I kind of knew the, 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 the space um, they were all kind of navigating, um, I was really interested in kind of looking at the connection between genocide stories and perpetration or narrative of perpetration. How those narrative of perpetration are also narrative of victimhood in a lot of different ways. Um, so that's what I started with. And then I kind of expanded looking at Rwandan in general, looking at Rwandan and Bosnian. And then lately I've been looking at um, African-American Black people here in the U.S. and how all those are kind of connected in the way we understand ourselves and the way we kind of create um, different stories and narrative for the next generations. Thanks, Claudine. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear how you're, you know, this lived experience that's, you know, uniquely yours, but then also quite similar to many of the people that you spoke with and interviewed in the book, which we're going to hear about today. So it's really, I hope that we can talk a little bit more and try and pull out, you know, a little bit of how you saw yourself in the research, even though you weren't, you know, technically a participant, you're still sort of there shaping the project as it goes along. Yeah, definitely. It was a very interesting space to navigate. I was an outsider, but I was looking into my own experience, into my own trauma through the lens of other people and kind of trying to navigate that space was um, was challenging, physically and emotionally challenging. Uh, but in some ways, I feel like this is work that needs to be done um, from the, the, the perspective of those who are in that dual position of being scholars, but also being uh, part of the community and trying to create um, conversation around what that actually means. Mm. No, that's, that's really helpful. And I, you know, not to belabor the point, but I, you know, something that we think about within genocide studies or even Holocaust studies as well is, you know, the role of, you know, uh, folks who work and critically analyze and, and try and document this past but then also have their own trauma as well. And it's sort of this really you know, challenging space to kind of have to navigate all of that stuff at once. Um, so let's have an overview of the book from you. Tell us a little about you know, what the, the project involved and but what the, the book um, conveys as sort of its main points. 
So the project was actually my dissertation. Um, I, I went through a lot of phases trying to understand what I was trying to do and what I wanted that project to look like, right? Um, but the way it turned out, especially for the book, was that I was really trying to understand genocide through the lens of actual people and not through the lens of like systems of institution. It was really kind of what was genocide through the people who actually either lived it directly or people who physically and emotionally embodied the trauma of genocide. So the those who were either born right before, who were born in the middle of the genocide or born after the genocide, right? And how the the younger, like the 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 early age of your life kind of dictate a lot of the the values you have, a lot of the the way your life is gonna be later on. And for a lot of those um kids at that time, they literally experienced the worst thing that could happen in human uh in like human history. And how would they understanding that and kind of conceptualizing genocide through that specific perspective? So that's really what I was trying to understand when I was working on the project and then later on on the book. The second thing um, the book allowed me to do was to connect labels to genocide, especially the the victim and perpetration label, right? And how it seems like a label when we give it to the people like on paper or like in front of codes and stuff like that. But that label is so more impactful and meaningful when it is attached to generations, right? And how the label of victim and perpetration and perpetrator um, is not just given to individual, but it is given to community, to societies. And it's almost like a mark they have, like a physical scar they have on them. They have to like find a way to either... um, take care of for it to heal or is going to let let it open and then kind of like get infested and things like that so really what was that label victim and the label perpetration on the society and how um the different generations were kind of trying to understand the label and either taking care of it or not and finally um the other thing i was kind of trying to understand then was the connection between how we see ourselves and what we say about ourselves, which kind of goes back to the idea of like identities and like narratives of identities, right? So from understanding genocide to understanding the labels that comes with genocide, how then do we understand who we are as an individual, but who we are as part of a society? And then um, what are we saying about then who we are? How are we acting on the stories we were telling. So those were the, like the questions I had in mind when I was really kind of digging in uh, the fieldwork, looking at Rwandans and Bosnians. And for me, it was important to kind of compare Rwandans and Bosnians because both genocide happened um, close to each other. They had similar mechanism in terms of the way we dealt with um, the pre, during, and post-genocide and the way they are often taught in school. And um, it was very important to me to kind of understand that I didn't want to look at Rwanda as just a Rwandan, but I wanted to look at Rwanda as someone who's trying to contribute to the scholarship and someone who's trying to actually show a picture of 
Rwanda is not that unique and the, the mechanisms that happened in Rwanda were not that unique. And if they are not unique, then what other lessons should we take? If we look at Bosnia and Rwanda, what are the lessons we are missing um, if we're focusing on genocide prevention and mostly comparative genocide studies? Um, so that was literally the picture I had in mind for, for the book. Um, some of the central things of the book are, um, again, identity, like what is to be a Hutu, what is to be a Tutsi, a Tukwa, what is to be a Bosniak, Serbian, a uh, Bosnian Serb, a uh, Bosnian Krat, and the history that comes with those labels, right? And how that history often kind of shaped the way we are understanding the conflict and the way we're going to navigate the post-conflict. And then uh, from that connection to um, to the history and the, the different ethnic and social identities, how do we, people who are removed from the country, so the people in diaspora, how do we navigate the space of being diaspora, but being fully merged into the country we come from, to the narrative we have created from that country? And are we able to distance, to distance ourselves? Are we able to... Um, in a lot of ways, create a life without remembering or without trying to like hold on tight to the trauma we have created and we have experienced in a lot of different ways. Um, yeah, so that is the book. I, I don't know if I, <laughs> if I actually explain anything or if I just added more questions and complexity, <laughs> but that was literally what the book was to me and i hope that's what the book is to a lot of people too no thank you yeah no, it's, it's really helpful so um obviously you're well maybe not obvious for our listeners but you're you know as you said now living and working here in the us uh, and you know you've demonstrated already kind of this or you spoke to already this kind of clear connection to rwanda and the comment you made earlier about making that transition from wanting to be in the room and to be involved in conversation about Rwandan past and, and politics. So I'm wondering why is it that you chose, you know, to work on diasporas from Bosnia and Rwanda in particular? Was there something there that was interesting in terms of a comparison and, and why not choose others as well? Um, so the very first reason was um, physical safety. Um, my first work on um, the Hutu identity was really kind of trying for me to understand myself. Like I wasn't necessarily trying to answer questions or trying to like create a conversation. It was really kind of trying to grapple um, my own questions. I am Rwandan. I am Hutu. So what did that mean for me and for my community? Um, that kind of led to a lot of physical and emotional abuses from a lot of different people, both in the Rwandan government, um, in my own communities, and um, and in the, the in academia. Like, I receive a lot of backlash for my very first work. Um, so focusing on diaspora in some ways was safer for me physically because I didn't have to go to Rwanda and that is another conversation for another day and um emotionally too because i didn't necessarily have to grapple with a lot of the trauma i know i haven't had time or haven't been willing to kind of deal with um the second one um the second reason um i think in a lot of ways 
it was also a way to give my community um, a, a, a place for conversation. Um, and that's tied to the third reason. Um, I am part of the Rwandan diaspora. And um, usually when we look at genocide studies, we focus on the country, on the people in the country. And we don't necessarily take time to look at diaspora community, like conflict-based or genocide-based diaspora, and how <clears throat> they are uh, a force for good or they are conflict makers uh, in a lot of different ways, right? Um, but looking at diaspora was, I think, an obvious choice for me. Looking at Bosnian and Rwandan um, was also, I think, very obvious to me. I didn't necessarily have to think about any other case. I had other cases in mind, but I was like, that might be project for another time, not for the specific one. Um, and that was due to the fact that I was involved within the Rwandan diaspora. I had a lot of friends in the Bosnian diaspora and the conversations we were having were like similar. And it was kind of in some way scary how similar the conversations were and how nobody was trying to understand why that was the case and how we can create more constructive conversation and I say conversation that kind of rehashing the trauma we all went through. Um, yeah, so that's that's why those two cases were kind of, it was like an aha moment. Like it was just how things were. Yeah, and I, you know, again, from your perspective, hearing those similar conversations definitely would have been, I'm sure it sounds like a trigger to sort of explore more. So in the process of doing the, the field work that you, you put in for the research and then that went into the book, um, what were some of the issues and challenges around doing the field work with the, with these different communities? Because you know, in the book and then in what you've said already, you kind of refer to then communities within communities, and then there's also intergenerational issues, which we'll talk a little about later. So, what were some of the issues or challenges with doing this field work across you know, Bosnia and Rwanda and diasporas here in the US? Um, the first one was trust. Um, do they trust me to kind of tell me some of the, the hardest things that happened to them? Um, and in a lot of places, that was, not, that was not the case. Like I had to build trust. And um, that kind of goes with the fact that I am very young and a lot of, especially in the Rwandan community, we don't necessarily consider younger people when they're talking to older people. Um, so it was like a weird space to kind of try to navigate. Um, the second um, difficulty was safety. Um, in the middle of my field work, I got hit by a car, literally coming from an interview. Like I, I had just left an interview, turned around the corner, walked on the sidewalk, and the car hit me while I was walking on the sidewalk. And, um, and that kind of started a completely new conversation around um, safety, not just for me, but also for the participants. And going back to trust, uh, could they trust me? Was I going to keep the information to myself? Um, if they were seeing the street with me, what would that actually do? What would that say to the people who are around us? And Rwanda, we... In some ways, we are paranoid for really good reasons where we 
don't trust people around us. We don't necessarily talk to people um, like openly. We don't necessarily share actually um, information to um, people we don't necessarily know. Even in our family, we kind of, we are reserved in a lot of different ways. Uh, but like that car accident kind of shaped or changed the way some of the conversations uh, uh, were taking place. Um, and I also mentioned I'm Hutu, which in a, in a lot of different ways has a lot of connotation with that. So um, Hutus were willing to talk to me, not all, but many of them were willing to talk to me. Um, Tutsis, it wasn't as easy. Um, I did end up talking to a lot, which I was really grateful, but I had to build even more trust and show that I wasn't necessarily trying to deny the genocide or be a revisionist and things like that. Um, and I was able to talk to two Twa, which was extremely difficult to, to find them, which is an indicator of a bigger problem we have in Rwanda and as Rwandans in diaspora. Um, for the Bosnian, it was harder than the Rwandans. Um, I had Bosnian contacts, which was really helpful. Um, so going through them um, allowed me to gain contact with some community leaders, uh, some church uh, organizations. So that was really helpful. But again, I had to build new new ties with them because I was an outsider. But as a Rwandan, sharing my experience uh, or sharing some part of my experience kind of opened some doors because they could see that I might not be able to understand what they went through, but I could empathize and we could share similar experience, both of the way we understand perpetration, the way we understand victimhood. Um, but it was a very challenging place to be in, in both communities. It was extremely challenging. Um, on a, an emotional level t- for me, um, because as I mentioned, I am pretty sure that I still have a lot of unresolved trauma and uh, field work kind of opened some of the wounds I had tried to ignore for a long time. Um, so I had a lot to process um, while doing the work. But also, I feel like for a lot of people, they took me as a therapist in a lot of different ways where they were kind of trying to process their own trauma through me, which created a bigger issue um, I had to deal with. Um, and I think the last one was kind of a question of legitimacy. Like, who was I to do this type of work? Um, who were my parents? Uh, which family was I tied to? Um, and which name did I know in the field of genocide studies that could kind of vote for me and things like that? So I had a, a, an issue of legitimacy in pretty much most of the cultures and I had to like build uh, trust in order to be able to just have a conversation that is not even part of the the work I was doing and then found that that weird middle space between I am one of you as a genocide survivor but I'm also not because I'm here on a scholarly um, approach I'm trying to take Um, so it was challenging in a lot of different ways. 
Yeah, and and even your you know your description here you know speaks to these really challenging issues of trust and legitimacy. You're know, working with the diaspora, right? Um, you know that's even out of the context of your home country. You know, without some of those more immediate security issues, particularly in these two cases, right, it can still be really challenging. And one of the things that you spoke to here that I wanted us to talk about is the the presentation of these kind of layers, both that you saw within yourself and then in your participants as well. In the towards the beginning of the book, you do you know I think think wonderful job in sort of pulling back some of the uh, the pieces and and looking at and examining how we use the phrases perpetrator and victim. You spoke about this a little bit already. I wonder if you could just speak to some of the theoretical thinking that you did and tell us about you know what some of the advantages and then challenges are to using these victim and perpetrator labels. Those labels are fascinating to me because we are all victims in our own stories and we're all perpetrators in other people's stories, right? Um, so we kind of embody both labels depending on who is telling the stories and how we're approaching that. And as a Hutu, um, the label that in a lot of places I was kind of assigned to was the label of perpetration. Uh, but when I was in the Hutu space, that label was the victimhood space, uh, the victimhood, a victim label. So it, it was kind of very weird. And also because my first work was looking at the Hutu narrative of victimhood, that set a, a, like a stage where at the beginning of the book, I had to engage with the conversation of denying, like genocide deniers, and what I was in the way I was portraying myself in those conversations, which I think is was problematic in a lot of different ways. Um, not not the way I put in the book, but the conversation and the 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 emotional kind of toll that took on me when I was trying to verbalize that uh, for the book. But the navigating the space of those labels um, is, I think one of the the hope I'm hoping that's one of the contribution I'm making with this book um, because those labels are fluid identities in general are fluid but those labels are fluid for people but they are crystallized and like codified on paper and trying to navigate that space especially for the younger generation um, I think is extremely problematic and extremely harmful um, for the younger generation who did not commit anything, who were not even born when the genocide happened, or who don't necessarily understand the, the history. Uh, one of the stories I mentioned in the book is from um, two siblings who who didn't know much about the history of Rwanda. Like before we engage in the conversation and the and the, the interviews, I literally had to give them a history lesson on Rwanda, like really like kind of a good hour to two hours history lesson on Rwanda. And then one of their question then was, why, why are they assigned a specific label if they are not even part of the conversation, if they don't know anything about it? Um, and their experience was in a way kind of 
a summary of what the book is about um, and how the victim and the perpetration identities have created conversations within specific communities and how they have, in a way, taken away a lot of their, their agency and a lot of their, 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 their personal journey from the younger generation. Um, but also those labels of victim and perpetrator, um, the way they tend to be framed or the way we tend to approach them, especially in the context of Rwanda, is controversial slash taboo in the communities I worked and I kind of uh, uh, lived with when I was doing my research. And that's, and for me, that says a lot about how genocide studies and in some ways taking more critical comparative analysis of genocide studies um, has been or should go to in terms of like where we should be heading as a field um, because the, the, the labels that comes with just the label of genocide on itself says a lot about how the next generation are going to experience and navigate their space. But then if you add the label victim of betrayal, then at that time is it's, it's another ball you're kind of creating another challenge you're creating. And, um, I think it was, it was interesting to kind of look at that specific space um, looking at other kind of ways of trying to understand that and different um, fo- like uh, theoretical foundation I used, um, it was kind of trying to look at the intersection of identity and narratives or narratives of identities and then how the, those labels are not just labels like assigned as a social constructed identities, but also those labels were creating a specific narrative that was not created by the by the communities, by the survivors or by the victims. Those labels were creating narrative for them by outsiders. And they had to kind of find a way to navigate that if they wanted to create a life for themselves. Mm. Yeah, there's there's so many sort of complex sets of agency going on here. <laughs> um, one of the other things you're doing is speaking about you know, future directions of genocide studies. And I guess one of the, the really sort of compelling parts of the book is you bring in, you know, this sort of wealth of knowledge from diaspora studies, essentially into the context of looking at genocide. Maybe just briefly tell us about some of the important theoretical considerations you had to pull from the diaspora studies, a bit of research that you did. Um. I think when I was kind of thinking about diaspora studies, um, or at least diaspora, I came across one article from Lily Shaw. And I think the article is named Turn to Diaspora, or Turn to Diaspora, I think. Um, And that article for me was kind of like, oh my gosh, this is what I was looking for. And um, the article was looking at the subjectivity of um, of diaspora consciousness in general. But also kind of tied to Val McVulcan, uh chosen trauma and chosen glory, especially when it comes to diaspora, um, conflict-based diaspora. Um, it kind of also tied to the, the complexity of um, the, the the journey of diaspora, not as a community, but as a 
a, a, a state of mind um, in a lot of different ways. So how do you tie uh, the loss of where you come from, the trauma you have from the journey and from what, uh, what happened to you, but also the mythical understanding of your homeland as someone who left a specific moment. And when you left, the, the way your country was kind of got crystallized in your mind and you were not able to move on and create a new image, you always come back to that image you had with you. So looking at diaspora and looking at the literature of diaspora, of course, I looked at um, some of the early writings uh, from Clifton, Saffron, and like some of those who kind of helped conceptualize the field on itself. But there were a lot of newer scholars who were looking at um, diaspora through the lens, through the lens of um, like conflict, through the lens of not just uh, the space you are in physically, but the, the emotional and the psychological space or like the, the idea of consciousness with the diaspora uh, communities. And then how... Um, diaspora are often tied to the country they come from, both emotionally and physically, and they almost cannot move on because of that connection to back home. And I feel like that was very, um, that was literally what was happening in both the Rwandan and the Bosnian, uh, mostly for the Rwandan because of how uh, the Rwandan state has been since after um but um, I think that the, that literature on diaspora, the, the newer, the last 10 to 15 years, literature on diaspora, focusing on uh, trauma diaspora, focusing on um, the, the, that mythical understanding of homeland and focusing on the subjectivity that comes with the, 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 the journey of diaspora was extremely essential um, to, to the book and to the conversation I was trying to have. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's shipstation.com with the code POD. Mm, thank you. Yeah. The, and I, this is you know, one of the, again, just to reemphasize one of the important contributions of the book is that you, you start to you know, do what scholars you need to be doing uh, in genocide studies and bridging some of those gaps, which is really helpful. So coming back to a little bit more about your fieldwork and engaging with diasporas, 
Um, I'm interested to know how your participants or the communities have responded to your work. I, I don't know if anyone sort of, you know, engaged with you after you, um, you, know, you, you gathered the information and you started publishing some things, including the book. If you've had any responses to the work you've been doing, uh, but then also have, how you've sort of engaged or thought about this issue of, involving communities in the process of you know, gathering knowledge but also producing or gathering data and producing knowledge? Um, I was lucky enough that uh, my first work was kind of looking at a community that felt like they were not necessarily being heard or they were not necessarily being acknowledged. Um, so looking at um, the Hutu community through the lens of victimhood or at least the narrative of victimhood they created, um, opened the door to a lot of interesting conversations. And I mentioned one of the the experience in the book where I went to a wedding and um, everybody at the table ended up kind of asking me a lot of questions about my work, about why I was doing that, about safety, about all those different things. And that kind of opened the door to like a conversation around the project that led to the book. And a lot of people were in a lot of ways kind of accepting and welcoming a project like this. Mostly when I said a lot of people, I'm mostly talking about the Hutus in this case. Um, But also, as I mentioned earlier, that created a lot of backlash where um, I was labeled a genocide denier by... um, a lot of tutees. I receive, <laughs> I received threats. I was followed. I had to change my phone number. I had to move several times because of how one community was accepting it and the other community was like, no, you're trying to revise the whole history of Rwanda. Um, and that is the space I was in when I started this project. So of course I had to be a bit more mindful of what I was doing, how I was talking to you. And people were way more mindful of what I was trying to accomplish. And they kind of knew who I was. So it was either easier to get in contact with them or they just were ignoring that I existed in a lot of different ways. Um, but um, the, the, the reception from the Rwandan was both positive and negative, depending on who you're talking to or which ethnic identity you are talking about. Um, but once the, the book was published, um, I remember I had a conference, I think the weekend the book got published. And a lot of people reached out to me after that saying that they actually want to read it because they feel like in some ways the conversations in the book are conversations they've been having home and they felt like those conversations, they were the only one having them. So this this book was kind of showing them those conversations were happening in a lot of different places and they had the in some ways the right to have those conversations they shouldn't shy away from those conversations um i i did in the last couple of months i did receive some backlash from some people which i was expected i was expecting and which i i wish or oh, i i think i have addressed at least um, the first couple pages of the book kind of talking about how I'm not denying anything, but I'm just kind of opening a conversation uh, with this book. Um, within the buzzing community, um, I know a few people who reach out to me saying that they finished the book and they really liked what they read. 
Um, I know a few people who also mentioned that I was giving too much, um, too much spotlight on the perpetrators and how I shouldn't be um, talking to Bosnian Serbs and things like that, which I was also expecting. Um, but I think so far, most of the things I heard are positive. Um, I'm, I'm, let's see. The book came out like two months ago. So let's see what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I found particularly interesting is some of the intergenerational aspects of the research you do. Both, you know, you spoke a little bit about sort of generational taboos in the Rwandan context, but then there's, this is a big issue in the Bosnian community as well. And there was one bit, and I'm not going to read from the page too much here, but um, towards the end of the book, I think you're uh, in, in, in an interview with a, a Bosnian participant, um, and they, they say this, uh, if you don't mind me reading a little uh, quote here. They say, many of us are afraid that our children will become fully American and will not care about their ancestors' traditions and values. Uh, and then you go on to say, as far as older generations are concerned, for younger generations to understand their journey and what happened in their homeland, they need to stay rooted in their homeland identities. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about this, this set of um, themes around the different conversations across generations and perhaps even that tension, not only within the trauma and the history of that trauma, but then also being in the U.S. is having a very... You know, dominant culture in and of itself to sort of see themselves as fighting these battles on multiple fronts. Sure. Um, looking at the older generations and the conversation I had with the older generations, a lot of them were talking about how they were trying really hard to like maintain uh, a sense of cultural identity back home, like in their own homes through foods, um, cultural events, through um, language and they were feeling that in some ways they were losing the newer generation to American capitalism and what American life is. And for them, that was kind of sad because they were like, we are here already. We don't really have much left and all we have left, we're trying to pass on to the next generations, but they don't care. Um, and when I was talking to the younger generation, um, they were in some ways concerned about similar things in the sense of um, I talked to some who could not speak or even write the native language. They could not actually understand it. They were understanding a few words, but they couldn't really understand most of the things that were being told to them. Um, so they kind of had that same concern. But one of the concerns a lot of the younger generations had was the fact that the older generations, they felt like the older generations were doing that because they were trying to avoid dealing with the trauma of what happened to them. Um, and the fact that in the families, they were doing all those traditional things, but nobody was really talking about what happened to so-and-so who passed away or how did they end up in in um, in. New York, in Denver, in whatever city they are in, right? Um, so the, the disconnection, especially when you look at generations, really came from a, a, a misunderstanding of what each generation is trying to do, right? In the sense of the older generation is trying to focus on moving on, yet focusing on 
the, the cultural aspect of where they come from, where the newer generation were trying to kind of go back and understand where they came from, what happened to their family. But because that was not given to them, they were in some ways moving on to the next things they know they could actually grasp and grapple with. Um, so like the transgenerational differences in the way the communities were understanding their journey, the stories they were telling, I think was extremely fascinating. Um, and as an outsider looking it, looking at all these things, I was like, oh my gosh, it's kind of obvious what the problems are. But then when I, I was taking a step back and kind of thinking about my own experience, I was like, yeah, I'm definitely in the same situation. All the things they're telling me, I can definitely see that in my own family, um, both between me and my kids, but also with my, my siblings and like the bigger family. Um, and that was extremely similar, both in the, the Bosnian and in the Rwandan uh, transgenerational understanding of who they are and what they are doing in the U.S., Mm. So overall, the book is this comparison of, or in many ways, is a comparison of these, you know, different diaspora experiences across you know Bosnian and, and Rwandan communities, without giving too much away because we want people to go out and you know buy and read the book. <laughs> what would you say are some of the the main points of comparison in terms of the similarities and differences between these sets of communities? Uh, one of the first one is the way they talk about the genocide. What events uh, crystallize in their narrative of the genocide? Um, and then who did what and who impacted whom? That was one of the main, the first kind of comparison. The second one is the journey to get here. Um, not necessarily physically, but the journey also emotionally and mentally to be in the space they are in and how that journey has a very interesting transgenerational kind of differences, right? The third one was what Vulcan looked at in terms of chosen trauma and chosen glory through the stories that are being told. Um, one of the interest, interesting story I mentioned in the book is how um, several Bosnian Serb I was talking to were telling me that they were going back to to Serbia. And I was like, oh, cool. And then they were kind of mentioning names of like town in Bosnia, but they are in their um, Serbian area, like their uh, Republican Serbia. Like they were really kind of talking about Bosnia, Bosnian town, but mentioning that they're going to Serbia, right? And kind of that says a lot about this idea of like chosen trauma and the stories and narrative they have created from those genocides. Um, and other, other ways of comparison is also how they have navigated the space here in the U.S. At one point, I also mentioned how um, being Black in America has also shaped a conversations among the Rwandan diaspora and how they kind of navigate that space too. Um, and finally, what's kind of how they see the country they come from. So how they actually interact with the country, both in terms of like social activism or in terms of like them just ignoring in a lot of ways their own community and fully emerging into the American society, right? So really kind of looking at the way the country they come from have shaped what they do and what they say 
in the space they are in. Mm. No, thank you for that. It's, again, very insightful. Uh, you mentioned earlier, and I have just a couple of questions now to kind of round us out a little bit. Uh, you mentioned earlier a recent article that you published on um, a black women's experience within academia. I wondered if you might just say just a couple of things about how you took some of the learning uh, that you gained from looking at identities, as you said earlier, in those sort of fluid ways, um, and how you applied that to this new bit of research that you've been doing. So this article is part one of a project I'm working on right now. I'm wrapping up right now. Um, and that came from the conversation I was actually having when um, the participant were talking about the experience here in the U.S. as students, as professional, as um, people kind of navigating the space of social and racial inequality in the U.S., and as um, a black woman in academia, I was like, yeah, like I definitely understand what they're saying. You don't need to have uh, a, a genocide history to see the, the different systems of powers they are navigating and that are preventing them from um, being who they want to be, from reaching their full potential. Um, so kind of these this understanding of like you have multiple identities and those identities are kind of shaped by the way you interact with your society or like the waves of uh, of significance you have in other communities in other spaces you are part of um and as someone publishing in um a field that tend to be mostly western especially looking at rwanda and, and genocide um, I, in some ways, want to take a step back and understand, again, going back to like my experience, I feel like my experience kind of guides most of the things I do. Um, so going back and looking at my experience and a, the, a lot of the feedbacks I was getting from um, colleagues and people in academia when I was doing my work, I was really interested in how um, identities kind of box you, box you in specific um, in specific places and you kind of have to navigate that space even if you don't want to which led then to the article looking at then how black women in academia experience multiple identities and how they kind of trying to make sense of what happens to them and um, find a space or create a space for themselves in a place that is not necessarily always welcoming um, and accepting not just academia but also the context of the U.S. looking at black people in the U.S. Mm. Yeah, and that, it's a helpful intervention given, you know, the a lot of the politics around you know the role of you know, what we often label diversity inclusion initiatives within you know the corporate space, the organisational space, but then particularly within the higher education space as well. It's a really helpful uh, intervention. So you mentioned that this was part one of a sort of a two-part project. Where do you envision this project going now? So I just finished part two, like a couple of weeks ago. And part two, part two is looking at some of the stereotypes that are part of um, academia and kind of looking at that through the lens of then the Global South scholars. So I'm not focusing on Black women per se now. I'm looking at then Global South scholars in academia here in the US. And I'm looking at um, stereotypes like mamming, um, tokenization, and some of those um, that are kind of part of the day-to-day -day life of 
uh, BIPOC um, people of color and kind of what does that mean to be in academia and why do they decide to stay in academia where they have to take on those specific roles that are oppressive in a lot of different ways? And what is the cost on the emotional, physical, and mental health? Yeah. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that when it hits the shelf, so to speak, right, as an article. Um, so the last thing I wanted to ask you, and you've dropped a few uh, names of, of books that have influenced you, but I wondered if there's anything else that you would recommend for our listeners in terms of any sort of literature, fiction or nonfiction, films or plays even, that you would recommend to people interested in the range of topics that you've talked about today? Um, sure. Um, I think it was 2018. I went to see a play, and the title, if I remember well, is Brave, We Got Story to Tell. And that kind of helped me in some ways conceptualize what I was trying to accomplish with the 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 project on black women academia and that one was really looking at um the history of mothers uh of black mothers in the u.s so how they experience tra- uh, trauma struggle and joy and how that kind of shape the way they navigate the space they are in um and that was influential to me because i was getting married at that time now i have a little boy and kind of trying to understand that space helped me in some ways write some of the questions I had for the piece on uh, Black Women Academia. I also mentioned that I am extremely fascinated by stories and how stories are created. Um, I recently rewatched a movie on um, the Cambodian genocide. Um, The title is um, Enemies of the People, and that one was kind of looking at brother number two so the the right-hand man of Paul Potts and how he um, talked about what happened in Cambodia and how he justified and explained some of the things that happened um so that movie for me was really interesting in terms of like the creation of narrative of victimhood and areas of perpetration and how as I mentioned we are all victims and we are perpetrators of specific stories um when I need to to stop reading about genocide, when I need a break, I usually go to Neil Gaiman, and um, I always reread American Gods um, because of the the understanding of your stories and the, the 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 narrative you create comes from different generation of like cultural, religious, and social belief system you have, and kind of. The, the, the American God book often helps me kind of look at the, the link between our past, present, and what our future might look like. Um, and recently, we had several really good books looking at Rwanda. Um, of course, we had uh, Judith Weaver um, in Praise of Blood. And then we had, of course, uh, Michaela Rong. Um, do not disturb. Like those have been the the three books or the two books I've been kind of uh, working and reading um, while I'm working on the next few projects I'm kind of starting. Very good. Well, thank you for sharing those recommendations. So Claudine, it's been great talking with you about your book. And again, just in case you didn't catch it at the beginning, uh, we've been talking about narratives of victimhood and perpetration, the struggle 
of Bosnian and Rwandan diaspora communities in the United States. Um, thanks very much, Claudine. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.